All right, just as a starting point, so here it is, the end of death and the, reign of, the beginning of peace. So followers of Jesus are promised that death and judgment are not the final word, but are rather are tools of God to rid the world of corruption, sin, and brokenness. Jesus will put an end to human death and usher in an eternity of peace. So we're in this three-chapter section of Isaiah where God has been speaking through the prophet Isaiah. If you're, if you're brand new to joining us today, a prophet in the Old Testament was just someone that God used, and God gave him words to speak. He spoke God's words with God's authority, and he spoke it often, most often, to God's people. It is not most of the time future-looking, but often can be. In this case, this one is very much future-looking, but to, to, be, to prophecy, everybody thinks of future-telling, but the the vast majority of prophecies in the Bible were very relevant to the time they were in, things that would take place in the lives of the people that heard this. This section is different as, as Isaiah has been speaking to the people of God, and he's been telling them that they have, they have wandered away from God, and they have, they have failed to, on God's commands, return to God. And because they've been a wayward people, God is lifting his hand of blessing off of them. And so as he's been saying that, he spends about 12 chapters just talking to the people of God, calling them to repentance, calling them to return. But they're not listening. And so God is allowing the nations around there to come in and uh, oppress them and take them over, eventually enslave them. And so then God uh, pronounces judgments over the nations that are also evil, even though he is using them for his purpose, allowing them to come in and overcome Judah and Israel, they still also defy God. And though he has spoken to them, they ignore God. And so God says, and so I will judge you as well. And then at the end of all of that, really 23 chapters of that, 12 to the people of God, the next 11 to the surrounding nations, we get this culmination of 24, 25, 26, where Isaiah looks down the full event of history, and says, ultimately, this will take place. And the judgments on God's people and the judgments on the wicked nations around them are just a foreshadowing of what is to come. And so last week, we looked at how God judged the entire earth. We looked at how the earth has been impacted by sin, how there was a curse on the earth because of our sin, because of human brokenness, human failure, human corruption, human sin. And today, as we look at these next two chapters, they really say, now, when that judgment hits the earth, well, then what, right? What next? And and a lot of times we see judgment as an end in itself, and it's not. It's a tool in the hand of God to usher something else in. So Isaiah 25, starting in verse 1, says this. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. That's not going to work. Excuse me while I throw my bottle cap over here. Uh, So here's what happens after the judgment. As Isaiah is seeing this judgment play out on the entirety of the earth, the very next thing he sees is believers, people, the redeemed, those who have been followers of God, those who have either survived the judgment or have been raised to life, they begin to worship God. They worship God for his truth, for his justice. They worship God because the plan, it says the plan from of old, you have kept your word. 
this plan that God has had since the beginning of time, and we saw that last week. As we, look at, as we looked last week in Genesis 3, as we looked at sin entering into human history, we watched as God cursed Satan in that, as God proclaimed Jesus to come, that Jesus would suffer and die, but that he would have victory over death, that relationships between man and God, man and woman in marriage, even woman and child in childbirth, that all those would suffer because of sin. Then finally, God curses the ground and says it will, the earth, that it will bear uh, thorns and, and we will struggle to work from it. And that work becomes a labor and a pain rather than a joy. So as sin enters in, one of the first things God does is says, but the prescription to sin, the, the, the salvation, the rescue from sin is Jesus. And so right there, God proclaims the gospel before it happens, right there as sin enters into human history, God says, here's how we will reconcile all this. This will come in Christ. And so this plan from of old, or from the beginning, if you will, God has this plan. And now as we fast forward through thousands of years of human history to a time beyond you and I, to where God says, that day has come, enough is enough, enough wickedness has happened, enough corruption has hit the earth, and I have rescued the people that I will rescue from it. Enough's enough, here's the end. And then God judges the earth and everyone on it. And then it says, on the other side of that, worship breaks out. And they worship the God who kept his word. And they worship the God who had a plan from the beginning that he carried out in its fullness. Now, um, a passage like this must cause tons of questions. It causes me to sit back and, and say, okay, well, like, why, why this long? Or what happens on the other side of that? Or God, why, why did it go this way? God, knowing this was going to happen, Why? We don't get all those answers this side of eternity. What we do see is the people that endure it, the redeemed, the church that moves through the trials and the tribulation and the judgment and the, the church that survives it, they worship God as just. So imagine this, imagine it's us and imagine everything is, is gonna come crashing to an end tomorrow. And again, with the earthquakes this week, we've thought a little bit about that, right? Like, okay, like, what if the 6.4 we thought was the, the one, and then the 7.1, and then they said, well, there's a 27% chance that there's a bigger one coming. And I just thought, that felt really big, right? And I remember the ones in the 90s, and I thought, okay, this is, so what if, what if, what if an earthquake comes? And what if that's not the end of the world? But what if an earthquake comes? What if that is, what if that's the end for some of us? What's on the other side of that, that it seems like when people finally start to get the answers and understand what God was doing holistically, they worship God for being just and pure and right. And so if there's any assurance in the fact that there are some questions we don't get answers to until we see Jesus face to face, if there's any assurance in that, it's that those who get to see Jesus face to face always worship this as being right and just and holy. So if that is an assurance for us that I just don't understand, one, you're in good company because no, none of us really do. 
but those that get, to, that get to walk through it as Isaiah gets a glimpse to the future, they believe God to be holy and just. Verse 2. Isaiah says, for you have made a city, the city a heap, a fortified city, a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. So there's, a, there's this, this recurring theme that Isaiah has throughout his, throughout his prophecies. Throughout the things that God says to the people, he has this recurring theme of two cities. And here he says, for you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. Here's a note from last week that we talked about Isaiah's two cities. Isaiah speaks of two cities, one built by the sinfulness of man and the other built by God. Isaiah pleads with people to abandon a temporary human dwelling or a temporary human life, if you will, this, this earth, for a life in Christ that cannot be taken from them. So Isaiah is always portraying this picture. In fact, this, was, this is so profound, it's so pronounced in Isaiah that four centuries after Jesus, when Augustine, one of the first really kind of formal Christian theologian writers, he writes this thing called the city of God, and he contrasts the two cities of Isaiah. And the one city built by human hands, the one built by what you and I have, it's, it's really a picture of human arrogance. It's not success or it's not achievement. It's not like you and I owning a home. It's the idea that we place our trust and we place our love in everything that is temporary here. And that arrogance and wealth and power build this city. And it's built on the backs of oppressing other people and enslaving other people. It's built on the backs of uh, of just, uh, you know, that desire for stuff. But then Isaiah portrays this other city. This city that God builds that is eternal. And Isaiah is saying that this city, you have made the city a heap, the fortified city. In other words, the strongest city that man can build, you've made it a pile of ruins. Verse 3, therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Notice that as this destruction is talked about again, what we see is a conversion of people. We see a conversion of, of strong people, people that rely on themselves or people that rely on this earth We see them as God begins destroying the things that man has made. People that depend on that begin to turn their eyes towards God. Verse 4. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud. So the song of the ruthless is put down. Again, strong people are being put down. But notice in the beginning of this passage, it says this, you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy and his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. One thing that is a recurring, a recurring critique of God's people from Isaiah is that they have, have not tackled uh, God's heart for those in need. And we talked a bit about this last week. We talked about children and, and uh, abortion. We talked about a couple different things, about caring for children, uh, the children of immigrants that are, that are incarcerated today. We talked about abortion. We talked about a couple things, uh, not as, as topics. They, they become political topics in our culture, but simply as a care for the marginalized, a heart for, for the weak, for the unborn, or for the child who has no choice in something. This would go on, if if God were to write this, if Isaiah was to proclaim this heart for the poor, God's heart for marginalized people in a modern day culture, 
rather than speaking so often about widows who really, when, uh, when, a widow, uh, when, when, a, when a woman lost her husband and maybe her children in the Old Testament or even in the New, they couldn't own property and they had a hard time surviving beyond that. And so today, modern day widows, as challenging as being a widow is, uh, they can own property, they can own business, they can have their own income, they can, they can survive uh, financially on the other side of a death. But what about today, maybe it would be single moms. Maybe it'd be moms that are raising children, single dads. People that are raising children without the other parent. The broken, the poor, the needy, the marginalized. And so Isaiah repeats this. I try to look through this and just kind of gauge how often does Isaiah talk about this. And in 66 chapters, it's about 25 to 20% of the chapters have this theme in them. So imagine you're reading along, and every fourth or fifth chapter, you're going to see this God's heart for broken, needy, marginalized, at-risk people, right? Teens at risk, or kids at risk, single moms, or just people that are hurting and broken. In our culture today, we hear a lot about homelessness because of uh, the shape of L.A. and, and what's taking place and, and what things that are going on in California and I don't know that as a church we do a lot about that. I think as a church, especially a kind of a center-right-leaning church, if you will, we might talk about how uh, unborn children need to be cared for, but do we really rally to the other side of that and give a solution for what we can do with children in crisis pregnancies? I know we have a, 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 a nonprofit separate from our church that cares for at-risk teens, that cares for them in crisis situations when they're at that breaking point in their life, that we can help them and their families make different decisions um, than they could maybe if they didn't have this resource. But really, we're a church that likes to talk about maybe some of the problems or some of the needs in society and culture, but do we really step up and offer to be the solution? Isaiah is critiquing the people of God for not caring for the people that need it the most. And he will say this over and over and over again. So a call to repentance for the people of God Isaiah consistently shows God as caring for the poor and the weak. We as followers of Jesus should imitate this attribute today. God's heart for broken people has not changed. God's heart for these people have not changed. God's heart hasn't changed. And if his heart hasn't changed on this, if this is a theme from cover to cover in scripture, spanning thousands of years, then this is something we should make sure that our heart aligns with as a church and as individuals as well. Verse 6, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, a, feast, uh, a rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. What we're getting an image here is a feast of victory. And we'll, we'll answer the question, well, what's the victory for? What's the victory over in just a minute? What it's saying is the choicest of meats and the best of wines are being served at this banquet, this feast. Verse 7 will start to tell us, what this is all about. It says, and he will swallow up, meaning God, he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. And so we have to answer the question, what is this veil or this covering that has covered all nations, all of history, all peoples? And the answer is death. In fact, Isaiah will answer this question for us as we keep reading. But for now, understand this. Isaiah is talking about God taking away death, death that has been the curse of all people throughout human history. 
And so here's where Isaiah is going. If you, if you zoom back out and you kind of include the Genesis 3 lens that we looked through last week and you look all the way forward to, the, to judgment and peace and the reign of Jesus on the other side of that, and what we have that takes place in the middle is God reconciling people to himself, right? So God creates humanity, designs us, causes us to be in relation with him, designs us and how we're to be, and we just kind of shorthand that here, just saying that we were designed to be worshipers of God, meaning not just singers or not just things like we do in church, but that our lives are designed to bring glory to our creator, to God, and that, that we, that's how we were made to be, and then when sin entered into human history, both the sin that we've inherited and the sin that we commit, those corrupt that design, and so that has severed the relationship between humanity and God. Like unfaithfulness in marriage severs a relationship or has the potential to sever that relationship, so our sin to God severs that relationship. And as humanity over you know, time has just not only inherited sin from the people that came before us, but also then got on in life and added to the sin and corruption to this earth, we've just added to the problem. And so because of that, there's, there's no reason, God doesn't owe us salvation, in fact, if anything, God owes us the punishment due the choices that we've made. But God, rich in mercy, loving, caring, benevolent, grace-filled, God decides, no, that's, I, I don't want that. Yes, they deserve that. I don't want that. I want to reconcile people to myself. I created people to be in relationship with me. And yes, their choices have severed that relationship. And they'll never be able to earn it back. They'll never be good enough. They'll never be able to earn it to achieve it, to succeed at it so much that they will earn my pleasure, that they will earn my love. Instead, I already love them, so I will enter into human history, and God becomes flesh in Jesus Christ. And Jesus lives the life you and I are called to live, but we have failed. He dies the death you and I deserve, and he doesn't. And on that cross, what, what Luther calls the great exchange that we get to offer up to Jesus all our sin and brokenness and filth and shame. That's all we have to offer. And that there, we just hand that to Jesus. And on the cross, Jesus gives us back his perfect righteousness, his victorious life, his overcoming of sin. And then Jesus lays in a grave. The author of life dies and lays in a tomb that our sin might be covered. If the story ended there, then you'd fast forward through time and the story would end at judgment. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus raises from the grave three days later, giving us new life. Jesus ascends back to heaven saying, listen, it's better that I go away that I might be able to pour out my spirit on you. And so we always ask as we're going through this in our discipleship groups, what's better than Jesus with us? Well, his spirit in us, right? Rather than being beside us, but his spirit living in us. And so Jesus pours out his spirit on any who will follow Jesus. And we get this promise that the gospel is much bigger than that. That death now doesn't have the final answer. And so God says eventually, here's what I do. Because of Jesus, because of the accomplishments of Christ, because of the gospel, I will remove death from all of humanity. So let's read that again. Verse 7. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples. That's death. The veil that is spread over all nations. Here's how Jesus says it in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
And he looks at the woman he's speaking to and he says, do you believe this? And she says, I, she says yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. Jesus says, I am life and death. I am the resurrection. If you believe in me, even though you die, you will live forever. And if you believe in me, you'll never die. You will live eternally. And yes, as we saw last week, this earth must be purged of corruption and sin. This body must be purged of corruption and sin. And I was just thinking through this this week and, and trying to think through, like, what does that even look like? What does it look like to have a body that is not wrecked with sin? As I've got back problems and knee problems and I'm tired from a long week and, and, and all that stuff that we just live with is just normal to us. Oh, we had a long week, so we're tired. Or yeah, you know, I had a back injury, so it is. Or a knee, whatever. No, that's sin. That's not necessarily my sin. That's, that's the, sin, the collective sin of the world on our bodies. What is cancer? It's because we broke the very thing that God gave us. Whether it be cancer you inherited from your parents or you get it from smoking or whatever, however it is, it was not a part of God's design. And because sin came in and the curse of that with us, we inherit this broken existence. But God keeps portraying over and over and over again, this isn't it. In me, this is overcome. Verse 8. So he's going to get very clear right here. So he, meaning Jesus, will swallow up death forever, for the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. So God will swallow up death forever. In Christ, because of the resurrection, death is not the final answer. Here's two other ways. So here's how Paul says it, and then John after him. 1 Corinthians says this, Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So death doesn't get to win. Revelation, the Apostle John writes this. He says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no warning, mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So the entire Bible paints this picture of a broken life that we live in, but this life not being it. And last week, we have to endure those hard passages that talk about judgment. We have to look at those passages and say, okay, the earth will end. The earth as we know it has to cease. This body has to cease. Either I'm going to die of something tragic or something illness or something old age or whatever. This body, this body has to die. Unless all of this happens tomorrow, like that, the chances are all of us will die. And a, and a bit of that is judgment on us in the sense that this body must be judged. This body must be purged. That this corrupt and sinful body, this corrupt and sinful planet can't be it. Because of sin, this is wrecked. But because of Jesus, this can be redeemed. So this isn't the end. So verse 9, it says, It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, we have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Now remember, this passage began as a song of worship for those who are redeemed in Christ, who have seen the judgment take place. And so as we look down there and we're like, okay, God, but why does it need to look like this? And, and again, we don't necessarily have all those answers. We have what God says, and we trust that God is good. 
And whenever we get a glimpse into what will take place through a man like Isaiah, through a man like John, or whoever, as God has given them something to tell us, what we see always as the people that see it and the people that endure it say, it is good and God is just. And that God does this to make things right. Verse 10, for the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain, and Moab should be trampled down in his place. As a straw is trampled down in a dunghill, he will spread out his hands in the midst as if a swimmer spreads out his hands to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands, and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground to dust. Again, God is saying the city of man must be destroyed. And he's showing that as this takes place, the people around this, and they see what God is doing, they're proclaiming that God is good. And as, and as God is doing this, he's saying, this is the end. This is where death comes to an end. Verse 26. It says, in that day, so when all this takes place, Isaiah's kind of drawing a line. In that day, when all of this happens, he says, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Now, the city of man is destroyed. Everything that we have built, this building, these lives, these homes, this nation, the other nations, everything, everything throughout history has been stopped. Death has been swallowed up, and now God institutes the city of God. I was, I was talking to my dad on the phone on Friday, and we were talking about, about eternity in general. He used to ask me a question. I forget how he phrased the question, but the, the idea was, what do you think it looks like? What do you think it'll be like? And I said, well, first off, the Bible is incredibly vague in a sense. Like there's not a whole lot that isn't very image-driven or poetic. And there's a few things that are given to us as facts. I said, but God, uh, but Dad, I, I, think, I think the way God has designed it is far more human than we expect. Or far more like this, but not broken. And I, said, I, sh and I told him, I said, I was, it was in a message a while back. It was in Isaiah and I shared about when I had my first back surgery. And I remember having back surgery, and I'd been in pain for a long time. We'd gone through a lot of things. Nothing was working. So we go in. We have a pretty major back surgery. And as I'm coming out of surgery and I'm coming off of anesthesia, the first thing I said to my wife when I saw her was, I'm finally out of pain. And, and it, was, it was this sense of, and she understood at the time, like, like we, we endure a lot of pain every day. Like if you, if you have a problem, something chronic, you just get used to it. That's just a part of your life. It just, this hurts, or this doesn't work right, or I walk with a limp, or I need this, or I got that, whatever. Like we just endure. Those that have cancer, long-standing problems that go in and have to have tests all the time to make sure it hasn't returned or whatever, it becomes, it becomes a part of our life. Diabetes, heart, you know, uh, uh, heart problems, or blood pressure, whatever it is. And we just live with it. And then it kind of just becomes so much a part of our life that we just don't even think about it anymore. It's just who we are. And when I came out of surgery, I remember looking at her and I'm like, wow, I'm finally out of pain. Like all the stuff that was so normal yesterday isn't. Like I'm back to a very different normal. And I think that's what sin and corruption of this earth, of humanity, I think it's like that. It is such a part of our life that we just don't know what it would look like without it. That it's such a part of who we are and how we live and what we do that when it's removed, we'll recognize that it's gone, but that it's just stuff we live with and ju it just is right now. 
And we can't even fathom what it would be like without it. But the images that God gives us, a city, a life, a new body, a new this, a new that, it, it seems incredibly human, but holy and not broken. Now, maybe that's completely wrong, but we don't get a whole lot of anything else. And every image we get is very like this, but not like this, not broken by sin. So the city of God, Isaiah shows the destruction of all that has been built on earth to glorify man and is replaced by the eternal city of God that cannot be destroyed. This is the permanent eternal life for those who are followers of Jesus. So after judgment, after all takes place, after death is removed, everybody there. Now this, we move on to a city of God, a city built by salvation. The walls of this city is, are built on the death and resurrection of Jesus. That these are things that are immutable and unstoppable. That these are things that cannot be corrupted. Verse 2, it says, Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps my faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So a new nation is, is, is what we're calling the, the church creates this new nation and built in this new city, if you will. And so a new human existence is the next slide. The Bible portrays eternity in very human and earthly terms, but as an existence not destroyed by sin. Our understanding of humanity and earth are so clouded by sin that we can barely even imagine what that might be like for eternity. But imagine what Jesus says to us. Like, there will be, excuse me, but imagine what the Bible says to us in general that he will wipe away every tears. There will be no more mourning or grieving. There will be no sadness. There will be no more pain, no more disease, no suffering. And so, all these things, very human terms, very human understanding, but things that are common in our life because we live in a broken world and because we are a broken people, he starts telling us by contrast what will not be here. No more need for fire trucks. Trust in the Lord forever, verse 4. For the Lord is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. Again, the city of man is destroyed. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground and casts it to the dust. Each week, and I don't even know if you know this, each week we do a five-minute recap of the message. We just do an audio version that we post on our website and on our podcast. That's uh, on iTunes. You can find it or you can, we can help you find it. We do a five-minute recap. Like, if you missed everything and you wanted to just get caught up, what was the most important things that took place on Sunday? And so what was, the, you know, of the message? How, can, how do we boil it down to something five minutes or less? And so we do that each week. And last week, after Sunday, I did it on Monday. I was just thinking through the Sunday message, and I thought, okay, there's, if I could have said one thing better, what would it have been? And it was that we mentioned uh, a refining fire at one point in the message. And I, I, I Googled this um, what refining gold in fire actually is, and I've kind of boiled it down to this statement. Refining gold in fire requires a hot fire with molten gold in a crucible being stirred and skimmed to remove the impurities that rise to the top. Flames reach temperatures in excess of 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, making this a dangerous occupation for the gold refiner. So in the, in the Bible, we hear a lot about refiner's fire. We hear about gold and silver being refined in a fire. And to this day, there's other ways to do it with chemicals, but to this day, superheating it like this and stirring it and skimming the dross that comes to the top and getting rid of that is still the most effective way. And so you imagine this thing just being heated up. And, and judgment is to this earth what fire is to the refining of gold. Right? Judgment is not an end in itself. It's a tool that purifies. 
When we talk about the earth being judged, judgment taking place, our bodies being killed or our, our, our earth being destroyed so that it can be rebuilt, consider that refining fire, that just that thing that gold has to go through, that it might be purified so that you have the pure version of what was intended. And so all of this, as we look at this, as God is portraying this, it's that fire that is purging the earth and humanity of all that is wrong. So judgment is a refining fire. I put it this way, as God's judgment ends the earth and humanity as we currently exist, it serves the purpose of ridding the earth of all corruption, like dross and gold. It purges the earth of impurity so that we can live in eternal peace. So that we can continue to live on in Christ in a way uncorrupted, in a way of peace, in a day without war, in a day without disease, in a day without pain, and eternity, the reign of peace. Verse 6, it says, the foot tramples it and the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy, the path of the righteous is level. You make way the level, you make level the way of the righteous, and you even notice, even the poor and needy are now now cared for. Verse 8, in the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and your remembrance are the desire of our soul. My soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. For when your judgments are on earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Isaiah speaks honestly about longing for that day. And I think as followers of Jesus, I think if, if, you're, if you're here today and you are a Christian, if you have given your life over to following Jesus and you've made him number one thing in your life, your, your priority, I think there's a bit of a mixed emotion and, and, and longing for that day where Jesus makes everything right. And, and, and if, if I'm honest, there's also that sense that not everybody I know and love knows Jesus. Right? And so I, I'm a bit torn. And we've seen Isaiah go through both sides. His heart aches for people who don't know Jesus yet, but he's also very honest. Like, I long for the day when everything's right. I long to live in this world the way you designed it, not the way it is. And Isaiah just cries out and just honestly owns, like, I long for that day. Verse 10, if favor is shown to the wicked, he does not learn righteousness. In the land of the uprightness, he deals corruptly and does not see the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, but they do not see it. Let them see your zeal for your people and be ashamed. Let the fire of your adversaries consume them. Again, judgment is a tool, not an end. Right? Let them see your judgment. Let them see your fire and consume them. Verse 12. O Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for you have indeed done for us all our works. The outcome of all of this is eternal peace. I don't even know that we have a way of describing that. When I think of peace, um, I kind of think of international peace. Like, right, we're always, there's always something contentious going between us and another nation or between other nations or whatever. Maybe peace in our home, the absence of strife. Maybe there's struggles in our homes or struggles in our lives, struggles in our workplace or whatever it might be. And it's always the absence of those things. But when, when Jesus talks about re- reigning in eternal peace, it seems to be the positive attribute where everything is right, not just the removal of things that are wrong. And I think it's so far beyond our understanding that we just, we get it by contrast as best we can. Like, okay, I know, what, I know what the absence of war might be. I know what the absence of struggle might be. I know what the absence of disease, but we really don't know what an eternal reign fully secured by Jesus in peace really is. 
And so we do our best just to look through time and imagine the things that plague us being not a part of it. Verse 20, if you skip all the way down to the end of that chapter, here's how he concludes these two passages, these two chapters, excuse me. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. And the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. So as Isaiah, for three chapters, talks about the judgment of the earth, the eternal reign of peace, Jesus removing death from, from reality, from covering death by his death and resurrection, death becomes no more. As all of this gets put together, as they paint a picture of all the hope that we have in Christ, not just a hope for today, but a hope forever. As he paints that picture, he slows back down and remembers, listen, that's thousands of years in the future. For him, it's been almost 3,000 years since he wrote this. Jesus will come, reiterate these things. The New Testament will retell these things. But he reminds us, he remembers, if you will, and writes down, he, he remembers that we live in today. And he says, come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out of the place to punish the inhabitants of the earth, and the earth will disclose bloodshed on it and will no more cover its slain. Here's what he says to the church. He says, remember, it's just a short time until it happens. Short time might mean all our lifetime. We don't know. But he reminds us that this, that this life has a start and a stop. That this life, should you live to be 100 years old, is short in the span of eternity. He reminds us that the hope is in him. And that it's not in this, this earth. That's why he keeps telling us about the two cities. Don't place all your trust in this city. This city is going to be destroyed. Place your hope. Fix your eyes on this city. The city built on eternity. The city built by the blood of Christ. The city that will ultimately reign and rule. And he reminds us, just, just remain strong. Endure. Paul writes it this way in Romans 8. He says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever it is we endure today, whatever it is we're going through in life, in struggle, in our health, and whatever it is, Paul reminds us, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The future that Jesus builds is incomprehensible and incomparable in comparison to what we have today. That's where we fix our hope. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. More than that, Jesus, we're honest. We thank you that what you secured with your life and with your death and with your resurrection is our hope. That without you, we have no hope. That without you, we're just left to our brokenness and our sin. Without you, we, we, all I have, all we have is this life. But in you, we have forever. And we have the opportunity to be with you even in this life, that you would walk us through the lives that we live, that you would continue to give us hope for eternity, that you would give us new life today as you, as you, as you do, that you would fill us with your spirit as you do, that you would, you would sustain us in this life. But every once in a while in Scripture, you paint this picture for us to look forward to,
that everything that is wrong right now will be made right by you. And that death, something we all endure, something we've talked about a lot lately as it's, uh, it's, been, a, it's been a part of our lives here recently. That as we mourn the loss of people, we begin to remember that we will all die. That death is something we will all see. But you remind us that the hope is you're going to swallow up death forever. And whatever it's going to look like, Jesus, uh, when everything is made right, what, whatever a world without sin and a body without sin and a life without sin, whatever that looks like, Jesus, I, play, I pray that we would eagerly anticipate that. That we would place our hope only in you and not in this world. It's in your name we pray. Amen.